Some of the work that we have to do to improve K-12 performance starts before children enter K-12. It is also about making sure that there is financial stability and well-being for their families. You will get different outcomes with investments and holistic investments around that family in early development and continuous development inside and outside of school. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Ron Dorsey, Chief Impact Officer at the Eastern Bank Charitable Foundation. Ron previously served as Chief of Education for the City of Boston under former Mayor Marty Walsh, and has been a longtime champion of investing in community and improving education in early childhood and through post-secondary schools. Today, Ron and I talk about when philanthropy works best, and what he has learned as both a shaper and investor in innovation in schools and cities. Ron Dorsey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jill. Glad to join you. It's, I'm so excited to talk to you today for so many reasons. I think a lot of our listeners will know you and know who you are, but for those who are not in this city or in education or in kind of building community and innovation at large. Can we talk a little bit just about where you're from and how you ended up here doing what you're doing now? I know you grew up in Detroit. Yes, the great city of Detroit. The great city of Detroit. My dad grew up in Michigan as well, so we've spent a lot of time in Michigan. Great people. And and your mom was an educator in Detroit Public Schools. And you were probably, you were growing up there as there was a transformation happening in Detroit that was it was sort of on the decline over, you know, a period of decades, right? I mean, it, it it was a complex time, I think, in the 70s and 80s when I grew up in Detroit. So, you know, the the milestone that precedes my birth is the uh, the 1967 riots in Detroit, which, you know, I would characterize as kind of tragic in some ways, but a liberating moment for Black Detroit. Very soon after, you see the rise of the Coleman Young administration. You see a lot of transformation positively in the economic circumstances for Black Detroiters as well. But you are at the tip of the transition of the automotive industry and certainly increasing competition from Japan and other places that really started to shift the workforce environment and the social contract in Detroit. But I grew up in a city where I think it was delivering more directly on the promises of the civil rights movement and of integrated society, probably more so than any city. Wow, that's so interesting. So how did you think about that as as a kid and look and now looking back as an adult doing the work that you do? Do, do you think it imprinted you in certain ways? It certainly imprinted me. And I didn't really figure out how it did so until I was a teenager and came to boarding school in Massachusetts. But the ring of segregation, as it were, was around the city of Detroit. So you've got a city that is 85%, 85% plus Black, occupying all the strata of economic wealth and poverty, power amassing politically, economically, socially in a lot of ways. On its borders, you had eventually the second and the seventh whitest cities in America, which were really the products uh, of white flight. So I think growing up in Detroit, uh, my sense of who Black people were was probably almost Wakanda-esque, just because of, I, I think, the high degrees of agency and social mobility in the city. When I came to Concord, Massachusetts as a 13 or 14-year-old, the thing that was most shocking to me was to see 
white people living with that level of affluence because the only people that I knew who lived that well were black folks. So that's so interesting. How was Concord as a teenager coming from Detroit? It was great. And again, I think I always am very thankful that I grew up in Detroit imprinted with the sense of agency Yeah, uh, that that city gives you, imprinted with the, the blue-collar ethic, imprinted with, I think, the, the DIY ethic that Detroit has. And so when I got to Concord, I was prepared in many ways. Socially, it was fine, but I understood that maybe I was not having a similar experience to other students of color. We were small yeah. cohort, maybe about nine of us when I got to the school out of 315. Wow. And what my peers knew is what racial oppression looked like in the rest of America. And so things that replicated that experience at Concord were certainly more triggering for them. It was a little bit newer to me. And I think when those instances came up for me, it was Detroit that kicked in and I had a different set of tools and and maybe more of a pushback mentality because while my forebears and parents and whomever else kind of knew the deal, you know, I grew up in a city that that didn't have a whole lot of tolerance for that. Yeah, that's interesting. You are the chair of Benjamin Franklin Institute here in Boston. Proudly so. Right, which is one of the most fascinating institutes that I've ever interfaced with on a deep-ish level. I think it's extraordinary. The students that I've met there are not generally exemplars in the public school. They have not had like great histories. Of, and, I, and maybe it's the folks that I've been introduced to, but they have really interesting backgrounds and deep interests in particular things. And they end up at Benjamin Franklin doing a deep dive in a particular interest discipline. But then they graduate out into the world in a significant generally paying job which sets them on a trajectory for a career, like a really valid career. And I think it's extraordinary. Why are we not as a city embracing that institute and trying to like amplify it significantly? Because the promise and and the way it delivers for so many students is extraordinary. It's also got some technicalities in that, you know, those students still have the heavy burden of making sure that they can live day to day while they're making their way through those courses and into paying jobs. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like this is a gem in the rough right here in our city, and we're not doing what we should be doing for it. Well, let me start there, because I think for a long time, Benjamin Franklin and now Benjamin Franklin Cummings, with the incredible gift from the Cummings Foundation, was one of the best kept secrets. I mean, this is an institution that was chartered by Benjamin Franklin himself, around the beginning of the 1900s, then transformed into the school by the Carnegie family and has done a lot of work to stay aligned with the apprenticeship mission and career technical mission for a long time. But it has not grown in the same way that the post-secondary sector in this mecca of colleges and universities have grown. It has been more localized. It's been outside of systems because it's kind of this quasi-public entity, but has more private status than other thing. But it's not private in the way that a Harvard is, and it's not public in the way that a, a UMass Boston is. And right. so it's been a matter of how it's constituted, how it's been branded, what the growth trajectory has been. And I also think the way that society has looked upon what is sometimes called vocational education or career technical education, and pejoratively 
oftentimes seen as an education path for young people who can't do school. In fact, I would argue this is the way that all training needs to happen. Benjamin Franklin is basically shining a light on diamonds in the rough. Students who haven't had the opportunity to demonstrate some things on paper. Yeah, let me try to speak to the secret sauce a little bit. You know, yeah. So one, we are a designated minority serving institution, which makes us uh, in some ways the equivalent of an HBCU. So the mission is about the success of young people of color. And so we take that very seriously. We understand the complexity of the backgrounds that they have. And so we are a high touch institution as well. So if there are needs inside and outside of the classroom, our team is helping to manage that and to shoulder that with students. And so that that high touch aspect of it is important. I think we are also a lot clearer. The one thing that we do is produce capability to make sure that you can do something incredibly productive with what you know. So it's not just about the content, it's not just about the skill, but it's the marrying of the two. And we're quite modular. So we're always scanning for what's happening in the regional economy and asking the question, where are the trends headed, where are the jobs, where are the careers, and how should we be changing programming to plug our students in? Finally, our faculty are field experts. They've done the work. So yes, we're doing internships and embedding students and companies, but they are learning from professionals who've actually done this work in the field. So it's not abstract or conceptual. They're showing you what it takes. Yeah, it's so fantastic. You, you've spent a long time in education. It, it's interesting. You graduated from, you went back to Michigan, right? Because you graduated from University of Michigan. What did you study there? Economics. Economics. Then you became a consultant and a researcher. Well, and, and let, me, let me say one thing about that. Uh, I, I became a public policy researcher because by the time I was 22, 23 years old, I didn't know what else to be because I had been apprenticed uh, into public policy research because I got my first job as a researcher at the age of 16 in a, a local firm outside of Detroit. So a friend of the family uh, owned a company called Moore & Associates. He brought me in as a 16-year-old for kind of my second summer job. And the yeah. first thing he said to me is, I'm going to teach you this business from the ground up. And you'll have to make a decision one day about whether you're going to run this business, but you will know everything about running it. So by the time I was 19, I was already uh, project managing projects for Detroit Department of Transportation, Highland Park Education, State of Michigan Ed. And so, you know, the, the training at Michigan kind of deepened the skill set, but I was, uh, I was ready to go when I got to APT Associates. That's interesting. Where was APT? APT was? Cambridge, in, Massachusetts. In Cambridge. So you ended up back here, and then you ended up at BAR, ended up at yes. BAR, which was, so that was your first confluence of public policy, research, consulting, and philanthropy. Well, it was kind of my second. While I was at APT with a group of my colleagues there, we created a small practice that focused on mostly national foundations. So mm -hmm. our clients were the Northwest Area Foundation, Casey, Kellogg, more locally, a few foundations out in Western Massachusetts as well. But, you know, this was at a time where both philanthropy and the federal government were really testing a lot of theories about comprehensive community initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so the question that we had as researchers had to do with 
how much more impactful is policy change when you have a grassroots up approach to it and you create strong and integrable civic processes and partic- participatory processes to produce policy change. So do you have a point of view? I mean, you must have a very strong point of view on this. Is philanthropy useful in, in making change in America? How, and if so, how? Yes is the answer, but I think philanthropy often has to get clearer about what it can do best and understand that its primary weapon is funding. Funders aren't necessarily the smartest folks in the room uh, and don't have to be because there are yeah. a lot of those folks. Yeah. Philanthropy often doesn't directly have its hands on the civic levers to make that change. So the, the question is, is often what can capital most powerfully do? And it's money, but increasingly it is social capital as well. And as much as funders can be the nexus point between a lot of sectors and a lot of critical connections, particularly over local landscapes. But I think philanthropy is most powerful, one, when that capital can be stopgap, when there is an emergency need for capital. So, you know, we've seen, especially over the pandemic, when families were hit hard around food insecurity, eviction threats, and a number of things, there are simply some things that instant dollars can do yeah, to cash stave off. Yeah, is very helpful. Yeah. So that is huge. Secondly, I think that there is an R&D function that philanthropy can uniquely play as well. Public dollars aren't always good dollars in, for, uh, for innovation and, and R&D. The traditional private sector knows how to do it well, and there's a lot from them. But the traditional private sector, unless there is an evident kind of triple bottom line thing, right. doesn't necessarily make the investment in civic solutions. Right. So it's almost a unique space for philanthropy to do that. I think the challenge, though, is that the long extended age of impact investing, which, you know, maybe we go back to early 90s, late 80s, when I think philanthropy as a sector kind of made some decisions about having civic impact, there has been a growing appetite for quote-unquote proven solutions. Proven solutions have their place, but we should be careful about, you know, and you know this well because you've, you've taught me this in a number of ways, you know, how replicable is that thing under different conditions and if it's proven, but we've still got more problems than we can count, that right. proven thing is not all that we need. Right. So there still needs to be some risk taken. And I think, you know, oftentimes because of our desire for quote unquote proven solutions, philanthropy increasingly talks itself out of risk. Yeah, I totally agree. I, you know, I, and maybe this is just the entrepreneur in me that I can't, you know, get rid of, but you just, you know, you just said it, it, we, you, you can't, philanthropy generally cannot pull the civic strings. Government has a very hard time spending money on innovation because they're, they're supposed to be the ones who are risk averse, right? They're, they're protecting generally. And, and what I never understand is why more philanthropy isn't stood up because of what you said, because capital is necessary to, to test things and to take risk. Well, how how are we not wearing that hat more often, you know, as philanthropists to just be the capital, be the risk, you know, be, you know, for, to whatever degree 
possible, you know, help do the analysis up front so that it's a, a calculated risk. But, you know, I don't know how we move things forward without, you know, more pairings between government and philanthropy where philanthropy is willing to take on the things that government can't and vice versa. Right. You're absolutely right. I think part of what needs to be developed, if that's going to be kind of the relationship or a relationship between government and philanthropy, is then what does the stage of adaptation looks like? So let's assume success. We figure out something on the periphery of government that has a whole lot of promise. How do you absorb that into systems? One of the challenges of bureaucracies is that there often isn't good change management. So how do you off-ramp that thing that wasn't working for people, work with your constituents to get ready for change, and then on-ramp that that new solution that you think is going to work better? And and we haven't built shared muscle around that yet. Yeah, I agree with that. Hey, how did you meet Marty Walsh? How did I meet Marty Walsh? Uh, You know, we met on a few uh, occasions. So one, he was one of my neighbors. Um, ah, okay. Probably lived two, three blocks down the street from me. In, so he was like out watering his lawn and you ran into him? <laughs> that was not how I met him first. But, you know, he and my wife had an opportunity to kind of work together in the local neighborhood association in Dorchester. So she knew him a lot better. You know, I would see him in the neighborhood at the dry cleaners or his, his office away from his office. And I hope that he hears this uh, McKenna's best pancakes in the city of Boston. Marty would be known to hold court there, so uh, would would see him in the neighborhood. But when the 2013 election came around, my wife and I were senior advisors for John Barrows on his campaign, you know, also knowing that uh, Marty was running and, you know, Marty had asked us for our support early, but we let him know that we were with John at the time. And so that election runs its course. Flash forward to his win. He reached out to me and said, you know, look, we got a chance to talk. I know uh, you work with John. I love the work that you guys did together. And a number of people have suggested that I reach out to you. Let's see how we should partner. Yeah. So what was it like to serve in his administration? Uh, It was great. His conceptualization of the role of the chief of education was an ecosystem role which Mm -hmm. hugely attracted me. So very clear that, you know, at the time that I came in, John McDonough and then following him, Tommy Chang, they were the CEOs Mm -hmm. of the Boston public schools. They were the superintendents, yeah. Yeah, my purview was to think about the ecosystem, the other school types, out-of-school time, early education, post-secondary, and how we bring systems infrastructure to all of that to do a couple of things. First of all, make sure that there's more than rhetoric behind the idea of a cradle-to-career pipeline. Mm -mm. We talk about it, but is there real connective tissue? Is there real seamlessness for families and students from the time that they are born to the time that they should be graduating from whatever post-secondary experience they want in Boston, and you've got many to choose from? The second thing that we wanted to do was to make sure that learning and development were continuous, 24-7. The schoolhouse door may be home base, but there are a number of doors to learning in Boston, not the least of which are to probably the most well-developed youth-serving nonprofit sector in America. Maybe San Francisco rivals it, maybe Chicago and New York rival it, but I would put Boston up against them all day. So it's interesting that he had a very ecosystem point of view then on education. And you spent a lot of time, well, you you spent a lot of time across the continuum. 
I know you went really deep on early childhood. Yes. Talk a little bit about why. So a, a couple of things. One, we wanted to build on our strength in Boston. At the time that the Walsh administration came into office, it had already been proven by research that the highest quality pre-K in America was in Boston public school classrooms. There had been some preceding work done by Boston Public Schools, the Barr Foundation, maybe TBF was at that table as well, to create an initiative that would start to build mutual capacity between BPS classrooms and community-based classrooms. So there had been several years spent really building what I would call the proto-system for universal pre-K in Boston. So now you get to 2014 and we want to take a more direct tack towards universal pre-K. What was hardest, I think, for folks to understand was that Boston was different from a lot of localities that had a seat and supply problem. So our problem was not that we didn't have enough seats for children. Our problem was that every seat was not of equal quality. And so we needed to make sure that we were establishing first what the definition of quality in Boston was and its inclusive of a well-trained teacher, high-quality curriculum that is evidence-based, high-quality parent engagement practices, use of data for continuous improvement, tuition-free for families. So there were about seven or eight criteria that our definition included. And then it was about making sure then we make the investments and quality behind every door. I think what was hard for the public to understand that, you know, aside from being able to take away the cost to the family pretty immediately, that the investment has to sink in to produce the quality. So make sure that your teachers are well-trained to make sure that we've got the right staff and leadership in front of you. If you need to switch curricula, that we help you do that, but also train your team on curricula as well. So it's not just a flick of the switch. Some aspects of it were in terms of deferring cost for families, but it takes a couple of years to build that kind of capacity to say, we've fully met our definition uh, of quality, but happy to say that, you know, the team in the city and at BPS, particularly uh, T.R. Dias and and Jason Sachs are doing a bang up job. I mean, uh, our estimate at my time in government was that we had a 1600 quality seat gap. That seat gap was probably halved by 2019 or 2020 and has probably been halved again. We've still got more work to do, but we are dramatically narrowing the quality seat gap. You know, this is, it's on extremely small budgets. Like This is another place where for sure money could help solve some mm-hmm. problems. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think also a mindset change. There's so much evidence that it's like birth to what, two, three, well, birth to, let's say, kindergarten, critical development time for, for humans, right? And And we're all, I mean, if you look at adult America <laughs> right now were the results of whether or not early childhood served us well or, or didn't well, serve us well. Well, if you do it right, Jill, I, I think what we were also trying to help folks understand, which I think still needs to be understood, is that if you do strong developmental work on the front end, yeah. it puts everybody close to an equal start at the kindergarten door. And we start to ameliorate some of the challenges that are faced in public school systems at the K-12 to level 
some of the work that we have to do to improve K-12 performance starts before children enter K-12. It is also about making sure that there is financial stability and well-being for their families. You will get different outcomes with investments and holistic investments around that family and early development and continuous development inside and outside of school. I totally agree. I, I just think it's crazy, or in addition, I think it's crazy that it's, you know, a $15 an hour job to take care right. of, you know, kids who are, you know, zero to five or six years old. I mean, that is old. an absolute social justice problem and really a, a travesty Massive. when you think about an industry that is largely women and increasingly women uh, of color. We've got to honor their contribution. That's right. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's a place that just needs massive investment if we're going to, I think, change public education. I, I want to ask you about that because it, it seems to me that there's a lot of discussion about, there's been forever. I mean, you've been in this for much longer than I have. I've been paying deep attention to it for five years. And it there's a lot of discussion about how public education in America needs to be disintermediated basically by itself, right? Like that's where the money is in, in taking care of most of the population. Uh, and I think about it, like I know it deeply in, in just from food, right? Like there's 50 million kids that the USDA feeds in school, in schools or could it's the largest health intervention potentially already funded. We don't do any, like, you know, we feed kids crap. It also feels like what you said is very true, even when we move into elementary schools and middle schools and high schools where everyone doesn't get the same education. And there, maybe it's budgets, but it doesn't seem to be so much budgets. It seems to be more about leadership and prioritization. And and it seems like everyone's always arguing. Well, we all seem to agree with all of the problems in American public school education. We, we seem to deeply disagree on the priorities and they change all the time under different leadership. And therefore only kids suffer because kids just like are on a trajectory. They grow, they, they, they move up every year. They grow an extra year every uh-huh. year. Uh-huh. And so they just uh-huh. kind of blitz through this 12 year period with adults who are much more stable that we can fight for decades about Mm -hmm. how to fix public school education. And meanwhile, we keep like churning kids through a system that's deeply dysfunctional and not serving them well. Are we making strides? Because you've paid attention to this for decades. And there's a lot of money available right now post-COVID to solve some of the things that were deepened by COVID. What what can we do to, or or how do we all, how do we all get along (laughs) in order to start to make Um, change happen? So one, I, I will say, Absolutely. I have seen improvements in the strength of classrooms, the strength of pedagogy and teaching, the ability of our schools to deliver. But I will reference, I think, our mutual friend, Paul Revel, who often reminds us school is not enough. But increasingly, we are putting more and more weight on school to be everything. And we need to be careful about that. Even if we look at the analog with the social service sector, There's a lot of literature about the limits and diminishing returns on multi-service work. And we are often asking schools to be multi-service organizations when a lot of what they're trying to do is get core operations and core mission right. And there is a lot of then necessary deviation from that work, but it, it winds up being some level of distraction, but 
this is where the ecosystem approach really gets to be important. So we've talked about concepts like community schools and full service schools and some other things. Sometimes part of the solution, but I think the larger concept that schools have to be a part of a network of institutions that support families is absolutely the right way to think about it. Now, the school needs to be the lead organizer. The school needs to be the hub for that. I've got a lot of different thoughts about that. And, and one, you know, don't want any particular model to undermine what school is really good at and to take it off course. Now, in some places, schools will, will need to be the hub because they're the major civic institution. I would argue to you that in a place like Boston, where you've got many different institutions and hubs and doors that families are coming in out and out of, school may need to sit a little bit on a more level partnership playing field with major hospitals, with major social service agencies and family supporting agencies. So maybe it's more of a networked approach here. So, you know, one one example uh, that I'll give you that I've often thought about, school clinicians are incredibly important to the health of students and families as well. They are, by and large, with some exceptions and technicalities, employees of the districts uh, and schools. But what if in a place like Boston, they are actually employees of our nonprofit hospitals and one supported with the salaries that are concomitant with that and the career paths that are supported in, in the medical field, that they have privileged access from a referral standpoint for the families that they serve in schools to those networks that they get the professional training and support that they need from the medical field by very well-resourced hospitals and health systems, as opposed to that being a part of district budgets and districts trying to figure out almost on their own, how do you support this very necessary professional class? Yeah, how do you run healthcare within a a public school institution? And so why that makes complete sense to me. This is completely logical. Why is that sort of thing difficult to accomplish? I mean, I think we've seen it on small and pilot scale. Totally. Uh, sometimes. But I think trying to then figure out what are the schematics for yeah. those kinds of relationships and how do we reproduce them? And also, how do we create integrated resource pools to do that? Yeah. Because I think even that model suggests that there's some public money in there, there's some nonprofit or private money in there, and it's got to be administrated somehow for those mutual purposes. Even if you think at a city budget level, I've often thought, well, you know, what if we integrated some health and human services dollars with school dollars and a few other pots to take a more human development approach to the work that we're doing that integrates those resources in a way and integrates those functions in a way where we've got a surround sound look at children and families. And we're not only asking about school, but we're asking about wellness and we're asking about a number of other things and the dollars help us to better coordinate. Yeah. I I mean, I I think you're right on with that. I'm curious what you think about the newly published reading and math scores, which sort of have deteriorated here in the state of Massachusetts, but across the country don't look great. Mm -hmm. COVID, you know, kind of being pinned as the primary reason and kids not being in schools for, you know, deeply for a year or so. What do you think about those 
test scores? Do you think that's that's a blip and they'll bounce back as kids are back in school? Or do you think there's a set of initiatives that we need to double down on in order to bring kids back to where we were hoping they would be at this point? I'm not going to claim to be able to see the future, Jill. Like, yeah. I, <laughs> I would... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'd be doing if I could see the future, but I'd be in a different position. But let me say this. The scores are worrying, but I don't think we know what we don't know about what was experienced uh, over the pandemic. So we tried some radically different modes of learning that I'm not sure we very well understand who was most deeply negatively impacted by that and who flourished We played with a set of tools that arguably should be helping us to differentiate and personalize more what the learning experience can be. We know that Boston has already had some of the platforms for making up for learning loss, if not for our nation-leading summer learning system alone. Right. The summer learning experience was making up, in some instances, almost a full year on math over the course of two and a half months, and had more marginal but positive effect uh, on reading. So we know some of what has to happen. And I think I would argue you need to look deeply into the design of the summer learning system, which has to do with doing more contextual learning, community-based learning, uh, has to do with some risks around actually making learning fun and making learning blended in some way. So there are actually moments where young people are learning when they don't even realize they're learning. And that's, you know, maybe what the difference is between being in your classroom and being on Thompson Island. We're focused back on schooling so much and that schooling has to deliver this, but still the great majority of learning time does not happen in school. No, I, you know, I like that answer because I do agree with you that we, we have better and better ways to discern the individual intelligences of, of every child and that and to be able to help them play to their strengths. And we, we opened up by talking about post-secondary education and all of the different opportunities, like that the traditional trajectory is not the only trajectory and actually kids really thrive in going down these paths where, you know, they're aligned with an interest in the outcome is a, a job that actually helps them to start to build mm-hmm. wealth. And, and so it is interesting to me that, you know, one of the things, I, the scores worry me. They also basically tell us that kids weren't as well taught to the test as they have been in previous years, right? And so, but is that like the end of the world? Probably partly reflective of now you're in an environment where under the high pressure of the pandemic, you may be facing eviction. You may not be eating regularly. You may have different responsibilities in your household for making sure that younger brothers and sisters are learning. You may be playing a quasi-parental role. So, you know, what I also like to say about the pandemic is not only do we not know kind of what happened vis-a-vis test scores and what traditional learning looked like, We don't know what young people learned. I would argue to you the skills that young people acquired over the pandemic, we don't ask them about in school. There are some ways that young people were negatively impacted, but there are some life skills that they accelerated on and we know nothing about it. Well, right. And, And prior to the pandemic, we had all of these conversations about kids needing grit in order to be successful. I don't I mean, there was not a grittier experience that that adolescents have 
survived it then than the pandemic. You're now working with Eastern Bank, right? Chief Innovation Officer of the foundation there. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So so you're you're back in the philanthropy business. Are there things that you're thinking about? How do you focus the work that you're doing? Where are you making grants and, and why? Yeah, so our overarching mission is around uh, economic inclusion and mobility in the region. And when we say the region, it's the bank service area, eastern Massachusetts, southern coastal New Hampshire, and parts of Rhode Island as well. Under that umbrella of economic inclusion and mobility is early childhood development, because we do believe that that is one of the pillars of family economic success when you can make that investment and do so in a way that is not economically detrimental to families. It is also, uh, we're also looking at uh, the development of small business ecosystems with a particular focus on founders and leaders of color Mm -hmm. uh, in those spaces. We're looking at housing affordability and sustainability and workforce development. So, uh, and I think increasingly learning about where some of the intersections between those places are. But I think our fundamental hypothesis is that the combination of household and community economic sustainability equals a win when you look at a number of, of outcomes, be it school, be it health, et cetera. And it's, you know, especially given our commercial interest as a bank, I would say we're perhaps clearer than most of philanthropy that our weapon is capital. Yeah, right. It's investment, and and you're very clear about what what your what the outcomes are that you're trying to go after. How how is it going, and what are what are you bullish on in terms of things that you've invested in recently? I mean, one very bullish on the early childhood work that we've done, and and I won't overstep any claims uh, about our success. But, you know, the pandemic created conditions for, I think, outsized movement uh, across the state to start to build a more sustainable system that recognizes the value of educators and that replicates kind of what we know that when early childhood providers are well-equipped, produces high quality and great developmental outcomes. So, with a number of players in the field, Strategies for Children, the Department of Early Education and Care, Neighborhood Villages. There are probably too many folks to list. This catalyzed really cross-sector alignment and I think a different emphasis of public leadership to get to some new solutions in early childhood development to the point that for the first time we got a half-billion-dollar infusion in the FY23 budget for early childhood in the state, unheard of, and did some experimentation to create a new financing formula for early childhood beyond subsidy so that we can better start to pay for the true cost of doing business uh, in the sector inclusive of labor. That's a huge leapfrog. Now, there are a lot of things to protect in terms of making sure that we preserve those wins and future budget, and also get a legislative framework into place that starts to build the system that we want. But this is one of the biggest leaps, I would say, in public policy domain notwithstanding that I've seen uh, recently. I think what we're particularly maybe excited about just here in-house is that we've partnered with Trust Neighborhoods, the Himes Foundation, Boston Impact Initiative, and the city of Boston to make an investment 
in the Blue Line portfolio, which will be a community trust to preserve 114 triple-decker units to preserve affordability in East Boston. And we did it as a subordinated loan as opposed to a grant. Now, uh, sophisticated folks like yourself, you've already been doing these sorts of things, but this was our first what's called uh, program-related investment, and we're thrilled about it. I mean, it feels like there's another arrow in the quiver, and for an organization that has as its mission economic mobility and inclusion, it, it's making more sense now that we have a tool that is more market-based as opposed to a strictly grant investment to really disrupt market dynamics to the benefit of families and residents. I think it's so important that communities either directly or kind of in allegiance with institutions like yours have equity in their community mm-hmm. and that they benefit mm-hmm. from the a positive trajectory within the community. I think the demise so, in so many cases for populations that are forced out is that they're just left behind as a particular part of the city gentrifies so many people lose out that actually, you know, kind of were the basis of that community from the beginning. And so I, I think it's really important to think about them as equity shareholders in all parts of the city. And so that's, that's a really wonderful thing to hear. It's a great investment. It. Yeah. And then, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about the last thing is the Jazzervane Cafe and yes. how is it going? It's going well. We are hoping to start construction on the Jazzervane Cafe at the end of October. All right. Um, Great. So um, this is going to be right underneath the bowling building. Yes. So it's the major retail space at Warren and Washington Street. The Jazzerbane Cafe will be a hybrid uh, restaurant and arts performance center, about 180 person capacity that will bring you great local talent and national talent on a weekly basis. And uh, also have a high quality, full service culinary program. We're excited about it. We're excited to be in the heart uh, of Roxbury and Nubian Square. We're also excited to be in partnership with the community in many ways. One of our major investors is the Boston Ujima Project, which is a membership, uh, among other things, a membership equity fund that made its largest investment ever in the Jazzurbane, which means you've got members who are not accredited investors who have skin in the game on this and stand to profit from the success uh, of Jazzurbane. So I'm really thrilled to be partnered with Dr. Bill Banfield and Nia Grace to be bringing that project uh, to Nubian Square. This is very exciting, though. So so Benjamin Franklin, Nubian Square, Jazzurbane Cafe, Nubian Square, community investors in that project. And then then the mayor just made an announcement about some investment in Madison Park, which is right down the street around the corner, too. This is long overdue and exciting. Yeah. Yeah, very exciting. Well, it's wonderful. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ron Dorsey. Ron's insights on the role of public and private sector institutions in advancing student outcomes are helping to drive the conversation about the future of education. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.